You're listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and the Tower of Excellion. Standing high within the topmost wall, shone out against the sky, glimmering like a spike of pearl and silver, tall and fair and shapely, and its pinnacle glittered as if it were wrought of crystals, and white banners broke and fluttered from the battlements okay, okay, in the Okay, okay, Adam, morn- we have to do a podcast today, right? Uh, right sorry, I, get, I just get carried away. This is season three, episode seven, The Lore of the Rings, I Can Carry You. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm so happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Welcome hey, to Lord of the Rings. Thank you. Yay. It's so been long. a long time. When we began putting down topics for the podcast over a year and a half ago, uh, the Lord of the Rings was, of course, very high on the list. Mm-hmm. And we have talked about elements of the Lord of the Rings um, in our first season when we talked about uh, princesses and we talked about dragons. the chosen one and dragons. Now we're going to talk about one topic over the breadth of the book, the Lord of the Rings, which has three parts. Um, and of course this book is incredibly long and incredibly complicated. So we are picking one and a small element of it to talk mm-hmm. about today. And that element is about male friendship. So one of the things I love about these books is uh, there's not a lot of women characters, so we're not going to, you know, it's not perfect in all ways, but the men that are in this, these books are rich. They are tender. They are lovely to each other. And the friendships that they form are so good to learn from and, and wonder, it's a wonderful place to spend time as you know, in fantasy and slang to emulate. Yeah. And I think if, if our listeners recall back to our episode about our own personal canons, uh, I spoke kind of at length about how the friendships in the Lord of the Rings really shaped my understanding of friendship as a child who moved around a ton and didn't really have a lot of friends. And it wasn't until after I read the Lord of the Rings and got through it all the way, which took a couple of tries, (laughs) that I really understood what friendship was and Mm. what it meant. And we chose the, the title for today's episode, I Can Carry You, uh, which is going to be our nerd quote today, because it really is the heart of friendship. Here's our scripture quote from the Gospel of John 15, 13 through 15. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father, I have made known to you. And our quote from Nerd Canon comes from The Return of the King, the chapter called Mount Doom. Sam looked at him, Frodo, and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. I said I'd carry him if it broke my back, he muttered, and I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you, and it is well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go, and he'll go. Yeah, just a disclaimer, we are talking about the book, The Lord of the Rings, although my guess is that the movies, uh, the Peter Jackson movies, will creep in here and there. Friendship as a facet of our identity, which is our loose theme for season three, really does uh, um, shape us as young people. Carrie and I have very different experiences growing up. As I said a moment ago, I didn't really have a lot of friendships growing up because I moved around a lot. Whereas you have talked many times on the podcast about having a best friend forever. And I lived in this because I lived in the same place from age three up until I left for college and then went to college very close to home. So yeah, we have, we do have different experiences. And in the case of me though, I read these books with those friends, with that friend specifically, and that informs how I read them as well. And you guys read them at the same time. I think she read them a little bit before me. These, these books are seminal books for me. Lord of the Rings is my favorite book. And I think that the reason that I love the Lord of the Rings, you know, beyond the fantasy elements, beyond what I consider beautiful uh, writing is the friendships. That really is what brings me back to this story again and again, is reading these friendships that are literally tested by fire 
Um, there are plenty of places where those friendships could break down, but it's the it's the friendships that actually carry them through the love that they have for one another. As Jesus says in our in our quote from scripture today, no one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. Mm-hmm. Over and over again in this book, the characters lay down their lives for one another and and only Boromir dies of mm-hmm. the fellowship. Oh, well, you know, you could debate whether or not Gandalf dies. But they're all willing to go there and they all will seek each other. I mean, the friendships that pre-exist, you know, so Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin and then you have some friendships that form during the course. So Legolas and Gimli being a really shining example of that. So um, I'm curious what you think about Frodo and Sam's friendship at the beginning of the story, because they really seem to be a early 20th century country gentleman and one of his household staff. Absolutely. We see that master servant role and and the friendship that emerges and the kind of, I I was thinking and rereading parts of this, um, thinking about Tolkien's experience fighting in World War I and the kind of friendships that get forged on the battlefield, especially in the English tradition of having nobility fight and having their servants come along with them to the battlefield, that kind of emerges. And then also, you know, I'm a big medieval literature nerd, so I couldn't help thinking of the medieval literature sort of vassal and lord like Beowulf and his certain his uh, Thane Wiglaf, the master and the servant, and the trust that develops through them and the and the relationship. Yeah, and it seems like it starts that way, and yet as I was going back and 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 rereading a little bit here, the scene you can I can see it in the movie where where Ian McKellen pulls Sean Astin through the window. Oh yeah, been dropping no eaves, sir. No dropping right? no eaves. Oh, that, that doesn't another good not text. actually what it says in uh, in the in the book. It's pretty close. It says, um, uh, it can't be helped, Sam, said Frodo sadly. He had suddenly realized that flying from the Shire would mean more painful partings than merely saying farewell to the familiar comforts of Bag End. I think that's interesting because I wonder if he means Sam in that in that moment because he had we you know he has some friends, Mary Pippin and, and so forth. And based on Sam's devotion to Frodo, they have a closer relationship than than you might think of, uh, you know, uh, like that English lord and his butler. And it's borne out throughout the story, uh, of course, um, because even if it was a sense of duty that might have propelled Sam at first, at some point in the story, they've gone through so much hardship that the sense of duty has cannot be the only reason that somebody is still going on. Right. And I think you really do see Frodo as the ring bearer and Sam becomes the, literally later, the bearer of Frodo. So it's Sam is supporting Frodo. So Frodo can do the job. And that's that, and that as they travel together, that master servant relationship does kind of eventually even out into friends and companions on the road until eventually it kind of reverses Frodo is looking for Sam for direction, for guidance as they lay on Mount Doom. That's where there is this kind of reversal, even um, physically, you know, Sam kind of holding himself over Frodo and, and Frodo reaching up to him. There's this moment where Sam in the way becomes the the master in some ways. Mm, yeah, definitely in the sense that he's the only one that has strength left to, to go, to, to journey on up the mountain. Throughout the story, Leading up to that point, we see Frodo continuing into the descent of that almost like addiction to the ring. And it's that burden that he's carrying. And I think about another passage we could have used for for our scripture quote was Jesus saying, uh, come to me, all, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Uh, because the yoke that he's talking about it's not that you take it off of me and put it on you. It's let's both wear it together like a team of oxen. Frodo and Sam are the two oxen in those traces as they further into the story, especially once Sam becomes a ring bearer because he is a bearer of the ring for a short period of time after Frodo uh, gets woven in Shelob's web and taken off to Kirathungal. And there are only three ring bearers by the end of the story, Gollum, Frodo, and Sam, and they all have this sort of special knowledge of what it means to have and held Bilbo. the ring. Oh, four ring bearers. I always forget about Bilbo. I always forget about Bilbo. got you. You got me. Just kidding. Cutting it out. Oh, no. I must be seen. Toxic masculinity. I must be seen must as the be authority. must be always correct. <laughs> uh, toxic masculinity. Um, we 
that's a, a, a common phrase in our modern parlance. We wanted to bring it up in this discussion because it seems that this book runs against that narrative. Very much. What do you, what do you, how do you describe toxic masculinity? The, you know, people kind of hear toxic masculinity and they think you're saying all men are bad. And that's not what it's saying. It's saying that toxic masculinity is the posture where you see the world only from a sense of competition, domination, and desire for power over others. And Lord of the Rings is beautiful because the power that is brought to people, the power that people inherit, such as Aragorn, is not used to dominate over people, but to to help and to grow. I think we, we definitely see that. We talked about this in the Chosen One episode. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, not the hands of a great warrior, not the hands of um, a tyrant, but the hands of a healer. The idea that all all men are bad if you if you cry toxic masculinity is just a smokescreen to say I don't mm-hmm. want to talk about this, because there are plenty of examples in fiction of men who run counter to that narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, Newt Scamander would be uh, one. Yeah, he's from a wonderful Fantastic lead. Beasts, mm-hmm. right? And then Aragorn, as you mentioned. Um, even though, you know, you think of Viggo Mortensen with this chiseled jaw and the ability to swing a sword, but what really makes that character stand out is his compassion Mm -hmm. and his desire to always be of service to those around him. And he doesn't want to be king. Right. He's He's a reluctant king, but he's an excellent leader. And that's really what makes the difference. And I think we deserve more rich views of male friendship in fiction because it gives us something to strive for. It's not just showing that, you know, like the bully guy or the guys who only want to talk demeaningly about the people around them, but it shows we want to see something that's rich and that does exist in real life. It might be harder to find if society is not lifting it up and saying and rewarding that kind of more, you know, compassionate serving behavior, but we deserve to see that. And that's why I love, I love movies and books where that does get lifted up. I love Newt Scamander. One of my favorite silly movies to watch when I'm sad is Three Idiots. It's a Bollywood movie. And the main character of that is a similarly compassionate and gentle and wonderful soul. And it just gives me hope. And it's a great place to spend time in. You know, growing up as a boy and, you know, into into manhood, you know, as it were, the words that you hear over and over again uh, are, you know, sissy, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're soft, you're, if you're not exhibiting traits of the, the desire to dominate or the desire to, to, to have power, to compete, you know, in, in ways that are very much zero sum. And the more we reinforce those uh, toxic tropes, the, the more we're going to have men who are sort of shriveling up because they really aren't able to live up to those uh, toxic expectations and they take it out on all of the people around them. And I think this is, it's, it's focusing on male friendship, but it also benefits other people, other genders. Um, I'm married to someone who's extremely um, sensitive in a lot of ways. He's more emotionally uh, mature than I am in a lot of ways. And I get mad when he showed up to the Suwannee flower guild to go help them arrange flowers for Easter Sunday. And they said, who are you and what are you doing here? They were expecting a woman to come and no, my husband loves flowers. He loves, um, no, I think he just mostly loves, <laughs> loves flowers. Um, <laughs> and, and being in touch with your emotions and that benefits everybody. He's a, he's, he's like Sam Gamgee, you know, he, Sam is a gardener, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Sam's a gardener who, who carries, um, at some point in the story, gets the Malorn oh, seed right. and carries it for the rest of the story in a little, in a little amount of soil and plants it back back home to to uh, where the party tree had been before the scouring of the shire so we have these these very tender characters um who are thrust into this horrible uh story that all centers around this ring and it's Mm. the ring that displays what we would consider toxic masculinity Oh, that's right. Because the ring wants to control and to dominate one ring to rule them all one ring to bind them. Because the other all of the other rings, all of the other rings, uh, the rings of the the, the 10 rings for the men, the seven rings Mm -hmm. for the dwarves, the three rings for the elves, they're all multiples. But then Sauron created the one ring to rule over all of them. And 
um, the, the, the ring bearers throughout the story, um, Bilbo and Frodo don't really wear it very often. Mm-hmm. So it, it affects them a little bit less. And maybe they have some Hobbit constitution that, that keeps it them a little safer too, <laughs> perhaps. Um, and then the other characters who are tempted by it, Gandalf, mm-hmm. Galadriel, uh, Boromir. Boromir. And, and certainly Gollum. We see that. Uh, and, and of course, Gollum. Yeah. Uh, they they have their moments with it and get Galadriel passes the test um, around not, not taking the ring. Gandalf does as well. Don't tempt me Frodo. Right. Uh, But then we have Boromir and Boromir is this really complicated character, I think, because he so desires to protect his home of Gondor and over the course of the story, he zeroes in on the only way that I can protect my home is by having the power of that ring. There's no other way to do it, which, of course, we know is wrong because later on they do protect Minas Tirith without it. Uh, but for Boromir, he's got this tunnel vision on mm. the ring because of his upbringing as the, the eldest son of a family of warfare. His dad, by the way, who we'll meet in Return Ugh. of the King is a piece of work. But I think it shows that Boromir didn't want to go down that path necessarily. It was the only way he saw forward. But in using the ring, the the one ring, the powerful ring, to get what he wants, what he thinks they need, he then ends up exhibiting those traits of domination. He literally was like, you know, wrestling Frodo, who's so much smaller than him in order to get his hands on this thing. He's willing to use his physical strength and also his um, his charisma, trying to convince Frodo to give him the ring. So he is trying to dominate Frodo in those moments. Yeah, and and here we get to the beautiful death scene of Boromir. He confesses to Aragorn, I tried to take the ring from Frodo. I am sorry I have paid. Mm-hmm. And then there's a few more words of exchange, and then he he dies. And we have this absolutely beautiful moment of Aragorn grieving for Boromir holding his hand, kissing his brow, weeping. Um, It says, he knelt for a while, bent with weeping, still clasping Boromir's hand. So it was that Legolas and Gimli found him. It's it's just such a beautiful, beautiful moment. And it goes back to what you were saying with with Tolkien in the trenches, Mm -hmm. I, I think, where these soldiers have bonded. And yeah, and held each other as they died, likely. I see this scene and I can see it again in the, the movie does it beautifully mm-hmm. where you have these two virile men, right? These two yep. fighters who are showing so much emotion for one another. And it's not, it's not diminishing their masculinity at all. What's beautiful about that scene is it's, it's enhancing it, showing that they are powerful, strong, loyal, faithful, mostly loyal, depending on, you know, Boromir had, a, <laughs> had a, a madness, he calls it, come over him. But then they're able to show this tenderness, and that, and that again, going back to medieval literature, the um, the chivalric hero being able to show um, emotion, being able to be physically demonstrative, to, you know, kissing one another on the brow or holding a hand, is it's not something we're familiar with, but is um, a very much, I'm guessing, part of Professor Tolkien's upbringing in reading all these in these pieces of literature. And yeah, so so when we think about masculinity, including in masculinity, tenderness, compassion, that these are not things that are antithetical to, to being masculine, but are things that can very much enhance uh, a person's identity. Um, and it's not necessarily that you're showing a feminine side, I don't think. It's that you are in touch with the full personhood of who you are, which will have you know traditionally masculine and traditionally feminine um, elements to it. I mean, we, we are all, all, all things in that. We all have the full range of emotions. And one thing that toxic, toxic masculinity does is shrinks the range of emotions that men are allowed to exhibit. And if they're not allowed to exhibit them, then we wonder, are we even allowed to feel them? And if we aren't able to exhibit them and we are feeling them, as we talked about in, in uh, our episode on Inside Out, emotions that we're not allowed to feel are going to come out sideways in destructive ways. Right. And there's a deep, I mean, there's a deep woundedness of a lot of our our men and the way we raise boys that needs to be healed. And I think Lord of the Rings can be a very healing 
journey to go on. Um, I don't have that experience, but I love someone. I love a lot of people who have had that experience and journeying through with these characters and seeing this in its wholesome, pure form is really a beautiful thing. So let's talk a little bit about carrying each other. Yeah. All right. Because I love that definition of friendship, that friendship is carrying one another. And it happens a couple of times in the Lord of the Rings. We'll get to the famous one in a minute. But as I was going through the story, um, I, I went straight to the scene where Frodo leaves the fellowship and crosses the Anduin to get to go into the, and you know, off by himself. Cause originally he's going to go by himself. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, he, he's, he's going to pull an Elsa. He's gonna, yeah. He's going to go disappear. Yeah. Literally disappear. Have, have a kingdom of isolation <laughs> on his little boat, but Sam follows, right? Yeah. Sam follows. This is the very end of the fellowship of the ring. He f- goes into the water, jumps at the boat. Uh, he can't swim. Fear was staring in his round brown eyes. Up you come, Sam, my lad, said Frodo. Now take my hand. Save me, Mr. Frodo, gasped Sam. I'm drowned. I can't see your hand. Here it is. Don't pitch, pinch, lad. I won't let you go. Tread water and don't flounder or you'll upset the boat. There now, get hold of the side and let me use the paddle. Yeah, I won't let you go. I won't let you go is, is such an important moment there because then over the next page, they have a little bit of a back and forth about uh, I'm going alone. No, I'm coming with you. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they do a great job in the movie there where he says, I'm going to, I'm going to Mordor alone. Of course you are, sir. And I'm, and going I'm with coming you. with you. <laughs> That's not exactly how it's written in the book, but it's close yeah. enough. And it's well, great. And, and Sam and Frodo says, don't hinder me. He thinks that having yeah. Sam follow along at this point will be a hindrance that he wants to go alone. But Sam ends up being the support, the yoke, you know, yoke sharer that makes it makes them get to the end and finally when when sam convinces frodo to let him come frodo frodo reflects so all my plan is spoiled said frodo it is no good trying to escape you but i'm glad sam i cannot tell you how glad come along it is plain that we were meant to go together Mm. so in the end frodo realizes that they are meant to be together and that he, his journey, there's no way for him to take this journey alone. It just, I mean, imagine what would have happened if Frodo had taken this journey alone. He would have Ooh, died in the m wheel before, before Gollum even found him. Gollum would have found him, taken the ring, and th- that's the end of the book. Was it because of the rope? Was it Sam's rope that saved him? I think it was Sam's rope. I'm just saying that I think that he would have eventually just sort of been stumbling along and probably fallen into the marshes or something. And so, I mean, it. yeah, it would be, there's so many times that that Sam kind of pulls him back uh, from the edge of disaster, from the brink of you know just the emotional burden as well. He's Sam's kind of like the chaplain who's sitting alongside and supporting <laughs> him on this role. And so let's get to the one moment in the movies that I really, really dislike. Was which it is, about the crackers? It's about the crackers, yeah. It's about the crackers. Dang yeah, it. yeah. Frodo, yeah. Frodo they never actually. Dirty. Frodo never actually sends Sam home, uh, <sighs> as he does in the movie. They do it in the movie in order to get Frodo alone going into Shelob's tunnel. Mm-hmm. That's the in the book. I I think all they do is they just get separated in the tunnel yeah, somehow. Yeah, it makes a little um, bit more sense. And that never happens in the book the closest we get is the moment we just said, which is Frodo going off alone, mm-hmm. uh, trying to go alone uh, at, at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. But they they are together. They make it into Mordor. Sam rescues Frodo from the Tower of Kirithungul, and they go all the way across the Plains of Gorgoroth. They get to, the, to Mount Doom, and they're lying there on the mountainside. And we get this absolutely beautiful scene They're on Mount Doom, the dark slopes of Mount Doom towering above them. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and singing eyes. I said I'd carry him if it broke my back, he muttered, and I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go and he'll go. Come, Mr. Frodo, dear. I love that. He calls him dear. There's a lot. Yeah, there's also a lot of uh, terms of endearment in these. I can't. That's just that that famous moment, though. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And just a page earlier, that I'll carry Mr. Frodo up myself if it breaks my back and heart. When our friends are in distress, when they're in crisis, we wonder what we can do for them because we can't necessarily take their burdens from them, but we can give them a shoulder to cry on. We can give them a support. Uh, as they move on, we can just be present with them, walking with them in those times and vice versa. They with us in our times of crisis. 
And that's what I learned, you know, when I, when I read this book originally is that could I have a deep enough friendship where I would want, where I'd be able to share my trauma, share my crisis, share my struggle with somebody else. And up until, up until this point, I had, I don't, I don't know if I realized that was a thing that you could do. Well, and it has to be, I do think it has to be discovered. I mean, I, I've had long friendships, but I think within those you have to discover, it's not just, it's more than just hanging out together and having the same interests. I think sharing that emotional vulnerability is something I've been seeking in my friendships ever since I learned that it existed. I don't know if Lord of the Rings was specifically the, the key that opened that particular lock, but um, deepening be, you know, our friendships beyond just the kind of mundane we talk about stuff and like to go places together all pre COVID, of course, um, <laughs> we're not going anywhere these days, but that you can carry one another's burdens and share the difficult parts and have those deep conversations. That's part of friendship that mm-hmm. I didn't experience until I was you know, a little older. And then I had to introduce it back into those relationships and it's gone well, but it takes, it takes a vision of seeing how you want something to deepen. And what you just said reminds me of my of the scene that makes me openly weep watching the Return of the King movie. Oh, I think um, I know what part it is. Which is uh, when Frodo wakes up in the bed uh, yes. after after being rescued by Gandalf and the yep. Eagles, and they it's all sort of slow motion, and the whole fellowship comes in and they're congratulating him and patting him on the back, jumping on the then, bed like you shouldn't yeah, do that, Pippin. Mary come on, Mary and Pippin come are on. jumping on the bed, <laughs> and then Sam just stands in the doorway. And smiles. and smiles and they just share this look and mm-hmm. you know that these two have been through something together that they can't discuss with anybody else it's different in the book of course but in that movie that's just that's that wonderful connection that they have with each other that they have carried each other this far and they they ha- they they share a knowledge that nobody else has and although they've been physically demonstrative and you know like kissing the hand and, and especially like when Frodo's hand gets wounded in the moment in the movie, at least they don't need to be anything more than just on the same wavelength. They don't need to show it's not a posturing. It's not uh, showing any, any of this relationship for anyone, but themselves. They just have that moment of connection. They don't need to alert the world. They just need to share it with one another quietly. And I think that's another kind of um, tenderness that we see in their relationship. And I remember in one of the special features on the Lord of the Rings DVD, Sean Astin, who played Sam, made it sure that at one moment in the movie, he runs up and grabs Frodo's hand. Like he, he was keyed in on that element of their relationship, that there was a physical demonstrative nature to it. Um, and, and he played that in the movie, I think, very, very well. And without it being romantic, I think that's another... You know, I was watching when I was Googling this um, year, when, when TBS was airing these movies, when they first came out, they had this like promo they made with the secret lovers song in the background. And it was all of the, it was basically like implying like, ha ha ha, they're gay together. Therefore we should laugh at it, which is inappropriate on so many levels. But this, I don't see a romantic side of this relationship. I see what's hard to What's easy, it's easier to pinpoint or to mistake it as that because we're not used to seeing strong, robust, tender male friendships. So it's easy to say, oh, well, they must be in a romantic relationship. It's almost, it's almost like pigeonholing any male mm-hmm. relationship that has any kind of tenderness in it. Yes, that, necessarily that, Therefore, it must be romantic. It, it, it uh, deflects. It, it's almost like this smokescreen for toxic masculinity, right? Because it deflects from from the the deep relationships that men could have with one another that aren't necessarily romantic if they were if if we were allowed to or had those models that we're talking about in in here and and you know people can ship frodo and sam fine i'm not gonna say don't don't do that um but i don't think it's necessary if you're doing it because you're uncomfortable with with uh some sort of physical interaction between platonic friends Mm-hmm. then maybe that's not the right reason to be shipping the <laughs> yeah. characters. So, yeah, so that's that's Frodo and Sam, who are, I think, the obviously the, 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 the glue, of, the, the yeah. heart of the book. Then we have these other, and we already talked a little bit about Aragorn and Boromir, but let's talk a little bit about Merry and Pippin and, and Legolas and Gimli. So these are the friends that their friendship predates the books. They are, you know, younger hobbits, even like related to Frodo, kind of his his posse or his, you know, entourage almost that he hangs out with back in the Shire. 
They're the friends that he buys a pizza for so that they help him move. Oh my gosh, that's exactly it. Because you want to yeah. get all your younger friends to yeah. help because they don't have back problems yet. So they're hopefully. gonna they're gonna move him to Crick Hollow. The movie does the the movie cuts out like three chapters of the book here. Importantly, cuts out like I think. a decade at least of Frodo's life. <laughs> But yeah, then they get swept up into the whole story. Uh, and you get that wonderful moment in the movie where, where Pippin says, great, where are we going? <laughs> right, he's willing to follow, but he has no idea what that entails. And maybe that's also a bit of a friendship thing. It's, you know, I'm, I want to go there and support you. I'm not sure what that is going to look like, but I'll be there with you. But part of their, they're on the same path for so long, kind of contemporaries in so many ways, but then duty is the thing that diverges them. They end up set, well, Duty and fro- uh, Pippin's stupidity, let's be honest. Oh, oh, wait Curiosity. a second. He touches the Palantir and the Palantir has power over him after he touches it. Gandalf makes it very clear that if Mary had been the one that picked it up out of the water, then Mary would probably That's, be the one. Okay, all right, all right, fine. Anyway. Okay. So <laughs> Pippin, gross circumstances <laughs> are the thing that diverges them. And they kind of learn, learn to be um, separate and apart while doing their own thing and serving, you know, respectively, Pippin serving in uh, Gondor and Mary serving in Rohan. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because they are they are like joined at the hip mm-hmm. up until that moment. So Pippin makes it to Minas Tirith with Gandalf, and Mary stays back in Rohan. They mm-hmm. end up they end up though at the end of the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, after Mary has helped Eowyn defeat the Witch King of Angmar. Both of them, uh, not men. Yeah, neither one a, a man. Uh, and Pippin's, uh, sorry, Mary's arm is dead. His sword right, has been struck. destroyed. And Mary kind of staggers along into the winding city of Minas Tirith following the, um, following the stretchers of Theoden and Eowyn. And I love this scene uh, I went back and I found this one. Mm. L- listen to this. Listen to this. To Mary, the ascent seemed age long, a meaningless journey in a hateful dream, going on and on to some dim ending that memory cannot seize. Slowly, the lights of the torches in front of him flickered and went out, and he was walking in a darkness. And he thought, This is a tunnel leading to a tomb. There we shall stay forever. But suddenly into his dream there fell a living voice. Well, Mary, thank goodness I have found you. He looked up in the mist before his eyes cleared a little. There was Pippin. They were face to face in a narrow lane, and but for themselves it was empty. And he rubbed his eyes. Mm -hmm. And the, the scene continues on. And Pippin's and and Mary is not doing well. Uh, he's staggering about. Uh, Mary says, "I don't think I'm wounded, but I can't use my right arm." Pippin, not since I stabbed him, my sword burned all the way like a piece of wood. And Pippin says, Pippin's face was anxious. Well, you had better come with me as quick as you can. He said, "I wish I could carry you. You aren't fit to walk any further. They shouldn't have let you walk at all, but you must forgive them." Um, so I wish I could carry you. We get this theme one more time here where now we see Pippin and Mary, but uh, kind of arm in arm staggering along these two hobbits in the, in a city full of men, a city full of humans. And they, they continue on to the houses of healing. It's a really tender scene. As the Rohirrim are approaching Minas Tirith, you know, Pippin is right in the front of Mary's mind. He's thinking of, of Pippin and getting, getting to him and being worried for him, seeing the destruction that's being wrought on the city. And it's, um, it's a kind of a fulfillment when they get back together again. And then we have an, an unlikely pair. I was, when you were talking about carrying, I was thinking of the scene of, you have to toss me. So technically, <laughs> Legolas I, does carry Gimli, sort of. I, I think, wait, wait, is that in the book? <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I, I'd have to go back and look, because that's they one scene. Played up, yeah. They played up a lot of things in the movies of uh, Legolas and Gimli's friendship. One thing I forgot was in the books was their competitiveness and counting. Oh, yes, of how that many, is definitely That is definitely in, in the, the books. books, and that yeah. made me so happy, because I thought, I was like, that must have been from the mind of the screenwriters, but no. Yeah. So, and, and we talked earlier about toxic masculinity being about competition. And so I wonder if Legolas and Gimli's relationship is a journey kind of away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I because, think so. yeah, because it begins where they are sort of suspicious allies because right. elves and dwarves in Tolkien's world are, you know, there's a lot of 
history of animosity mm-hmm. between them. And a lot of prejudices and stereotypes. And so it makes sense that they might be a little suspicious of each other. Um, but then it softens into affable competition. It does. It's not a cutthroat competition. This is not, you know, it's, it's, this is for fun, really. Well, and their, and their respect and admiration is built on their prowess in battle, which is where the competitive thing comes in. But then it, it softens into to this shared amount of sacredness. Um, when they when they go to visit one another's holy places, there's that those special moments of, you know, saying we'll we'll visit the the forest of Fangorn and what was the the glittering caves of Aglaron. Yeah, and so I, I looked those scenes up too, and we get to that moment in the chapter many partings in Return of the King. Then Legolas repaid his promise to Gimli and went with him to the glittering caves. And when they returned, he was silent and would say that only Gimli alone could find fit words to speak of them. And never before has a dwarf claimed a victory over an elf in a contest of words, he said. Now, therefore, let us go to Fangorn and set the score right. They, they show each other what is most precious to them, mm-hmm. what is most dear. They bring each other into that part of their own, of their own worlds. Even if uh, Gimli is a little bit grumbly about going to Fangorn, <laughs> you shall come with me and keep your word, and thus we will journey on together to our own lands in Mirkwood and beyond. To this, Gimli agreed, though with no great delight, it seems. <laughs> so we, we still well, get... <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. still being himself. They're not totally changed, right? They, yeah. they, um, he's, still, he's still grumbly about it, but they, they do it out of friendship. So as we as we wrap up this conversation, we have these wonderful deepening friendships over the course of the very long story. I mean, this book is uh, taken all three parts of it together is over a thousand pages. Yep. Uh, and they're not easy pages to read. This is not a book you can just sit and, and just sort of turn your brain off while you're reading it. Uh, and yet that's what I love about it. Um, it it forces you to to take the journey with the characters. And it, it's rich, it's immersive. It is a lot of words, but they they do, I think it allows the characters to open up in a way that you wouldn't get if it was only, a, you know, only 200 pages per book, say. Yeah, because they, they are able to have these long descriptions or speeches or songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get such depth into the characters and their relationships, especially Frodo and Sam, that by the time we're done um, with the quest, we are also friends with all of these characters and we want to emulate them and take on their, their nobility, their respect for one another, the dignity that they, that they grant to one another. And, and even when they're down in the dirt, you know, with haven't, haven't eaten in days, they are still kind to one another and they are, they're able to move forward together. And isn't that, you know, what we learn from being followers of Jesus is that love isn't always glamorous. You know, Jesus did not come in the form of a king with armies and palaces and great riches, as our godly play stories remind us, but as a baby born in a barn who will die on a cross, a criminal's death, out of love for friends. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. This time on the podcast, we're rereading chapters 21 and 22 of Prisoner of Azkaban. Here's a quick recap. Chapter 21, Hermione's Secret. Harry awakens in the hospital wing where he can overhear Snape oozing smugness as Fudge praises his heroic rescue of the poor, confunded students from a mass murderer. As they discuss the terrible fate awaiting Sirius Black, Harry desperately tries to relay the truth, but of course, no one listens except Dumbledore. If only they had more time. But wait, Hermione reveals the secret she's been carrying all year, a time turner. The two travel three hours into the past and manage to rescue Buckbeak just before his execution. As they wait to rescue Sirius, Harry wonders if the person who saved them by the lake was his father. Although he is dead, the figures look so similar. As the Dementors close in on Sirius, Hermione, and Harry of the past, current Harry realizes it wasn't his father, it was him. Bolstered by this knowledge, Harry successfully casts the life-saving charm. 
The pair fly Buckbeak up to where Sirius is being held and, after some rapid goodbyes, send Sirius on his way. Chapter 22. Owl Post Again. The duo races back to the hospital wing and sneak back into their beds just in time. Meanwhile, Sirius's escape is discovered and Snape is livid. He is positive it has something to do with Potter. But apparently he can't connect the dots between Potter's best friend and the time-turner she has had all year. Alas, Dumbledore expels the Dementors from the school grounds after they, you know, almost sucked the souls out of two innocent children, like we always suspected they would. The following day, Harry receives the horrifying news that Lupin is resigning after Snape outed him as a werewolf. Git. Harry and Lupin share a heartfelt conversation and the assurance they will meet again. Traveling aboard the Hogwarts Express, the trio are surprised by a letter from Sirius. Some mysteries are revealed. Turns out the Firebolt was from Sirius, and Ron gets to keep the owl since his rat, you know, reunited with Voldemort. Unhappily reunited with the Dursleys, Harry's tumultuous third year ends. How many times does Harry try to go forward and do something foolish only for Hermione to snatch him back and kind of create like a, a balance? Kind of like Sam constantly buoying and helping Frodo along the way. That's what I was mm-hmm. thinking of. Yeah. Hermione definitely has to keep reminding him of the rules of time travel. Mm-hmm. Um, this is really a telling statement for Dumbledore uh, after they say, but you believe us. And Dumbledore mm-hmm. says, yes, I do. But I have no power to make other men see the truth or to overrule the minister of magic. Ooh, yeah. And how true is that? I mean, it's very hard to change the the biases, the preconceptions, the prejudices that lead people to certain decisions. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that becomes the, he does try to change people's minds later about Voldemort and is wildly unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. And he's also not willing to use his power to dominate. He's using it to enhance the learning of, you know, all these school children for generations. He's not going to be minister for magic. So that makes a lot of sense, actually. I missed that quote in the reread. Yeah, and and the fact that he is molding children, you know, in his system of values is so much more powerful than trying to change the mind of the Minister of Magic. Who is, as we can tell in these chapters, a total waffler politician. He's such a politician, it's disgusting. Okay, so let me go back to what you were just saying about Harry and Hermione, uh, where Hermione keeping him from not intervening in the past. Mm -hmm. And I wonder in our age of COVID, how hard is it when doing nothing is the right thing to do? I like that parallel because yeah, you're right. The right thing to do is to do less, to not, I mean, we see that in the church wider. Sometimes we have to, the right thing to do is to not do as much, but specifically in COVID. And in this case of the time turner, the best thing they can do is just kick up their heels and wait. Doing nothing is hard. Our American obsession with productivity, we don't recognize uh, doing nothing as an, an action. Mm-hmm. You know, the concept of Sabbath, we could talk about a little bit here, where we've talked about this before, but Sabbath is an active doing of nothing. It's a rejection of, of being defined by your actions. Whereas, you know, we, we love to ask, what do you do for work? You know, it's our doing that is important and we're defined by our, by our work, by our actions versus who we are and our presence. And I think one of the things we learn as priests is how important presence can become when you're, you don't have a job necessarily when you go to a hospital room and someone's dying, except to be there. And that can feel like inaction, leaving space for families to talk, leaving, you know, space for the, the, for those emotions to, to happen, but that is action and it's difficult. And it feels like you're not doing anything. Chapter 22, I just want to say how much Fudge talks about what would it look like from the outside? You know, how bad is it going to look for him? Oh, this, this mass murder escaped? What a huge problem for the life and welfare of British wizarding population. No, what Fudge cares about is what will the Daily Prophet think? And that is so indicative of his career in the next two books. It's- and, and that's so true to life. You know, I mean, how often do do we do we uh, individual people but also our our leaders do things only for their own personal mm-hmm. gain as opposed to the community's uh well-being the optics of the thing you know fo- a photo op versus an actual and how many times do i mean i think about 
kind of like mission trips sometimes those can turn into exploitation of of populations not just you know using them as well using them as a photo background for us feeling good about ourselves um and that ends up being more about way more about us than the communities we're serving fudge is all about him he's not about the community he serves Mm -hmm. the performative nature of certain elements of christian mission life is a whole nother topic (laughs) but it's a that's an interesting parallel well, we were reminded he's a minister for magic. He's a, that's a very intentional word that's used in, in certain government structures that we don't, we don't have. Yeah, somebody who is serving. So Dumbledore preempts Snape, unless you're suggesting that Harry and Hermione can be in two places at once, I don't see the point in troubling them any further. <laughs> like, but as, he, as you pointed out in the recap, you wrote the recap this week, yeah. The ministry knew Hermione had a time turner. She had to write them letters. Yeah. Right? I don't have a clue how no one thought about that. And then Harry, in his conversation with his Dumbledore download, as you Dumbledore download, call, yep. uh, t- TM, trademark. TM, p- not podcast for nerdy Christians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it didn't make any difference, says Harry, about Buckbeak and Sirius and everything that they did. And Dumbledore says, it made all the difference in the world, Harry. You helped uncover the truth. You saved an innocent man from a terrible fate. You helped uncover the truth. Even if everybody doesn't know that truth yet, you know it, I know it. You know, enough people know this that we have completely changed our understanding of the history of this uh, this, this tragic moment in our past. And again, I think that it kind of all looks like nothing. And maybe that's what's hard for Harry to understand. It's not the outcome he desired. He doesn't get to go live with his godfather. The actual criminal isn't being carted away in chains. It all looks like a big bag of nothing. And yet we'll see how important these actions are in the course of the story. We get reminded that by saving Pettigrew's life, he has formed, Harry has formed an indivisible bond with Pettigrew. And Dumbledore says, I'm much mistaken if Voldemort wants a servant in the debt of Harry Potter. The time may come when you'll be very glad you saved Pettigrew's life. When they're having that conversation and Dumbledore says, you saved an innocent man from a terrible fate, it made me think about capital punishment. And I I think that everybody would say, yeah, innocent people shouldn't be put to death. And that makes me think about that. What's that? What is that commentary saying? Should we be putting guilty people to death? What is, you know, what would be considered a pro-life position around capital punishment? And and as we're recording this at the beginning of December, the Justice Department is rushing through federal executions before January 20th to seemingly execute as many federal death row inmates as possible before the current administration leaves office. I, I am 100% against the death penalty in all cases. And so it's not just saving an innocent man from a terrible fate. The death penalty shouldn't be used for guilty people either. Right. It's under cruel punishment. It's a you know part of cruel and unusual punishment. It's so irrevocable and so unchangeable that I'm, I'm also I'm on the same the same side. One last thing about the Dumbledore download from my side that I noticed is that, you know, you think the dead we love ever really, ever truly leave us as Dumbledore. And that is such an idea of such a Christian idea about the community of saints that we are surrounded, uplifted and empowered by the, the loved ones, our beloved dead that particularly are most present in the Eucharist, but also present around us all the time that we, when we are present in worship, we sing along with them. We are joined with them in that way. Um, I, I think that a Patronus is kind of like a visual representation almost of a communion of saints. I guess in Harry's case, not everyone's Patronus is a dead loved one, but Harry's is. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And and so it's more than just you found your father inside yourself, which he says, which could be seen as like a platitude. There's a real deep meaning to that when we're when we're bringing a, a lens of faith to it uh, and a lens of the, of the resurrection that Harry is actually able to conjure this connection to his father through his Patronus. And the Patronus, as we've said before, is that thing that it, it's like the, the purity of your positive energy. Mm-hmm. It's a distillation of all the best parts of you, your friendship, your love, your hope. Well, how are we going to characterize the, the, all, of, all of book three? How do we want to finish up? One of the themes I've noticed in Prisoner of Azkaban is 
switching kind of the bait and switch we see of Sirius being the villain and then being the hero in some ways, being Harry's godfather, teaches us that we don't ever really truly know people. I think that's something that we learn in Christianity, that people have this mystery of God at their heart. Um, We might hear a lot of false information from other people about who we are and who um, but but God truly knows who we are. And I think in this case, in the case of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry knows who Sirius is. And he is able to connect with him despite all of the lies that have been told about him. Uh, the search for truth in this book is really compelling because there is so much evidence that points one direction. And there's a lot of bias and prejudice that reinforces uh, that that. Uh, presentation of so-called facts but in the end when they're actually able to to have a conversation and lay out all of the elements of the story on the table they understand what truly happened and it's that um, search for truth in this book that leads to even if uh, harry thinks it didn't make a difference it leads to this uh freedom and liberation for Sirius. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my brand new website, adamthomas.net. Check out Seven of Shadow, the final volume of my fantasy series, The Shields of Sulero on Amazon. And you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. And now... May you be blessed with friends who will travel with you to the glittering caves of Aglarond and Fangorn Forest, who will carry you up Mount Doom, seek you out in the twisting streets of Minas Tirith, and journey with you to the end of all things. May the friendships you have strengthen you and teach you the love that Jesus has for you. Amen. Amen.